From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Glenn Rifkin joins us to talk about his book, Future Forward. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, Plato once said that it's the storytellers that set the agenda. Well, joining us right now is journalist and author Glenn Rifkin, who will be telling us about his new book, Future Forward. It's a story about Patrick McGovern, one of the most influential storytellers in the computer publishing industry. McGovern has also been known for his sense of leadership and vision. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Frank.、Uh, you've written a very timely book. So tell us,、uh, what was your inspiration behind Future Forward?、Uh, well, first of all, I actually worked at the company、um, that Pat McGovern founded and ran for 50 years. I, I worked there、um, in the 1980s at Computer World, which is the you know, kind of Bible of the industry in, in the tech space. And I worked there for seven years, and I, I got to know Pat. Working there, as did all the employees, because he was out there among the employees a lot and、uh, just an affable, you know, friendly guy. And the more I learned about him, the more I realized that, you know, his story was pretty amazing. And I would often, in later years, I would often mention to him when I would see him that it was time to write his book. And he would always laugh and he would say, Yeah,、uh, I'm not quite ready yet, there's so much more to do. And, you know, sadly, he passed away in 2014, and we never got to do the book together. But I was always, you know, of the mind that there was a story to be told about this amazing guy. And、um, a couple of years ago, his son, Patrick McGovern III, approached me about doing a book to honor his father's legacy. And he said he had been given my name by a lot of different sources, and it was sort of a perfect timing. And kind of almost meant to be as far as I was concerned, because like I said, I'd always thought there was a good book here. So I, I listened to a little a bit of the,、uh, the YouTube clip on, on the website for the book. You said that it started off as a、uh, biography for, for Pat, but it's also about leadership, and you go over 10 leadership lessons. Could you perhaps talk about one or two of them? Yeah, absolutely.、Um, you know, th- there is biography in the book, by the way, but we didn't,、um, I-, I didn't feel like a biography was the best way to go with this. I thought the takeaways would be these leadership lessons, which were kind of remarkable, not necessarily totally unique, but unique in the way that he, that he portrayed them for the, for the company.、Um, one of the main takeaways, one of the main lessons that comes from Pat McGovern was his vision to decentralize. His company right from the beginning. He understood back in the 1960s when the, the information technology industry was really just getting started that this would be a global thing, that this was going to be、uh, something important for people all over the world, not just in the United States. 
And he also understood something more important than that, that these kinds of markets, these kinds of um, issues that people would come up against were not the kinds of things that could be dictated from one central location like the U.S. They were local to the local markets. So he foresaw the way to do the internationalization of the company was to put the power in the hands of the local country managers who would then be able to decide based on the market information they had you know what was appropriate for the publications they were going to create and he gave them remarkable autonomy you know it was a, a case of they could make all the decisions they needed to make to make their publications succeed uh, to serve their customer base in the best way possible so decentralization which you know has become much more commonplace over the decades but back then it was kind of a radical thought and and he made it work beautifully there were mistakes along the way you hire the wrong person in the wrong place but most of the time he won and so it's a it's a valuable lesson there you're a author uh you're a journalist and uh you you cover technology as well as other topics surely you must come across uh, other figures in Silicon Valley. To what extent do you think most other companies follow some of his lessons, or do you think a lot of them are still lacking in those qualities? Well, it's a good question, Frank. The um, it would be hard to say. You know, here's a company that modeled itself after what McGovern did. Um, I think that the the ideas that he had. You know, another lesson was um, the the way that he identified the warriors, and then empowered those warriors to, to do the job for him. is something you, de you definitely see in Silicon Valley. You definitely see in companies like Facebook and Google and, and um, you know, all of the, the big players, even back to Microsoft and, uh, and Apple. You know, the idea was to find the best and the brightest and give them a chance to do what they need to do. Uh, McGovern was early into that kind of thinking. And um, the lessons that you can take from that um, – are universal, but often, you know, it's it's about the individuals who run the show. Like take Apple for example. Steve Jobs was well known to be a very difficult guy to to work with. He was demanding, and uh, he could be kind of offensive and nasty to people. He he got things done because he was so brilliant and he had the vision, um, and that's one path to take. McGovern didn't do it that way. He was a kind man in a in a tough industry and that was a rare thing you know people who could actually win by doing well by doing good and by treating employees you know as a family it was a culture that he created and there are you know a lot of companies that have emerged that way but i don't think um there are too many leaders out there who really modeled themselves after mcgovern because it 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 required such a uh, an empathetic way to look at the world I, and, and, you know, it, it may be one of the reasons why he, th despite the fact that he was a pioneer along the lines of a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates, he didn't get the recognition that those guys got. He wasn't ruthless. He wasn't pounding desks. You know, he was the guy who went around during the holidays, and he would literally visit every U.S.-based employee at their desk, no matter what position in the company they held, he would talk to them, chat with them. He'd always remember their names because he had a photographic memory. And he would then hand them a Christmas card with a nice cash bonus in it and thank them for the work and contributions to the company. Now, there aren't very many CEOs who ever do anything like that, but he did it right up until he died. 
And that was a, many thousands of employees. It took weeks for him to complete the task. But he felt it was so important to connect with his employees that he did that. And those are the kinds of things, you, you know, that's rare. Uh, I, I don't know of a, another CEO, either in tech or outside of tech, who does that. Reminds me of the book, The uh, No Asshole Rule. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was just um, the culture that he created. You know, here's an interesting scenario. During the 80s, Ziff Davis became the main competitor for IDG, you know, PC Week and uh, the, the Apple publications. Bill Ziff was, in many ways, not unlike McGovern in terms of being a sort of a polymath, a, a brilliant mind, but he was not what anybody would mistake for being a kind and, and caring guy, and he never went around the offices. So Ziff Davis had an atmosphere that was very competitive. I know a lot of people who worked there uh, during this time. It was kind of a backstabbing, you know, winner-take-all type of culture. That And they paid people a little bit more money. They recruited me, for example, at some point. But a lot of people refused to leave IDG because, you know, what price tag can you put on being able to work in an atmosphere that's based on collegiality, cordiality, kindness, you know, empathy, that people felt part of a big family, that they were rewarded in that way. So there was that contrast between IDG and, and Ziff that, that was very um, dramatic. And, and I think that, you know, people really responded to that. And would you say today, uh, to the state, that IDG still abides by those practices? You know, it, it's an interesting question because when um, just last year, in 2017, the company was sold to, to China Oceanwide, which is a big conglomerate in China, uh, and, and its venture capital arm was sold to also a Chinese operation run by Hugo Shang, who was, in fact, a protege of Pat McGovern's. Because the company was sold, the culture inevitably you know, has to be impacted. It doesn't have to disappear. And those 10 corporate values that Pat McGovern created way back in the 60s still adorn the walls of every IDG office around the world. But, you know, I think that it would be reasonable to say that, you know, there's, there have been changes, they've had to cut back due to market realities, and those things definitely affect people. But, you know, my sense is that IDG is still a very dynamic company, and, you know, the people I know who have worked there and are still working there feel pretty good about the place. So when you think about, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Silicon Valley and probably uh, to a large extent Wall Street, um, this seems like a complete contrast. Uh, the image that you get of Silicon Valley is extremely competitive and extremely cutthroat. Uh, you know, what advice do you have for, you know, some of the up and coming entrepreneurs who are aiming to make a mark in the industry? Well, I think that what McGovern proved is that you can be incredibly competitive. I mean, there was nobody more competitive than him. And he liked earning money. I mean, he was a billionaire. And you don't get to be a billionaire just by showing up. So, you know, the book isn't intended to, to downplay the business side of it. I think there's evidence that he was a, as competitive as anyone. However, it doesn't mean that you can't create a culture in your organization that's based on those values that I just described, that caring for your employees and making that clear and, and expressing it in various ways and caring for your customers that same way, including your customers in discussions, inviting them 
to corporate events so that they could share their opinions. Opening it up, being transparent, showing people that they're part of something that's bigger than themselves, I think is as relevant today as ever. In fact, maybe more so. Because some of these companies, you know, the Silicon Valley giants, have gotten so huge that that entrepreneurial sense uh, within inside them, you know, it struggles to, to exist because it, once you get to a certain size, it's difficult to maintain that kind of value system. So I think that, uh, you know, young entrepreneurs looking at it could look to Pat McGovern and say, I can do well by doing good. And that's, you know, a mantra that you've heard a lot in the last decade, but it's just lip service unless you actually put it into practice. And he was able to do that by, by you know, embracing these views that I said. There's another one of the lessons that we talk about, for example. He made the term, let's try it, a mantra. So encouraging that you literally, if you had a business idea and you presented it to him, you know, in a coherent fashion, by the way, you couldn't just toss it out. But if you laid out a business plan and say a page or two to him, he would inevitably say, all right, let's try it. You know, he'd throw some money at it to give you a shot at starting it up. And it encouraged people to take a giant step out of their comfort zone and to see what they could do, what they could achieve if they took some risks that normally an employee in a big company would never be even allowed to take, let alone be encouraged to take. So those were the kinds of things he did, and I think those kinds of uh, ideas still work um, today as, as effectively as ever. Certainly lessons that I, I think everybody could abide by a bit more. So let's talk a little bit about the technology or tech in general. Um, you know, it seems Pat had his finger on the pulse of where things were going. Did you get a feeling that you know, even during the 80s, he had this idea that computing would one day be pervasive in all aspects of our life and that uh, eventually um, automation and uh, even robotics would would start to have an impact on everything we do. There's no doubt that he had uh, this kind of a vision. I've called him a visionary, and that's an overused term, but, but in his case, I think it's appropriate. Um, the thing that, yes, he was definitely on to trends. He didn't hit every trend. When I was at Computer World in the 1980s, for example, Computer World was aimed f pretty much at the what was then called the data processing manager, then became the IT executive, the CIO. And, you know, those guys were not, they didn't have their eyes too firmly on the personal computer and what that would mean. So Computer World missed that boat, you know, not completely, but early on. I could say that we probably didn't focus enough attention on that. But for the most part, McGovern, he was such a curious-minded guy. He just, he was insatiable in terms of wanting to take in knowledge. He never presumed that he knew everything about everything. And, and that curiosity, that, that thirst for understanding things served him so well because he was open to everything. He didn't get married to some technology trend. You know, when it was... Um, when the company was reporting on the mini-computer market in the 80s and Digital Equipment Corporation and Wang and Data General were giving IBM a run for the money, he didn't say, okay, well, this is the end game. You know, this is it. We're going to throw all our eggs into this basket. He understood that each trend was succeeded by another trend, and he kept an open mind about that, and his publications reflected that. They weren't specific to some technology. They, they would just cover the way that the, the, the marketplace was going, which gave them, uh, all of these publications, an opportunity to be 
generally ahead of the curve. So, you know, you go from mainframes, you go to mini computers, then the personal computer arrives, then software becomes the story and networking, all the way along to the arrival of the Internet and smartphones and an entirely new world. We have a supercomputer in our pocket now that can give us pretty much all the information known to mankind just sitting in our pocket. He was able to leap from one of those trends to the next without really missing a beat. And that's not easy to do, but he did it over 50 years, almost 50 years. I mean, that's just remarkable in itself, given the changes and the rapid changes in technology over that time. You know, it also takes a certain skill to be able to communicate these very complex um, ideas uh, and terminologies we use in technology to a broader audience. Um, you know, what was the process to to find the writers and and journalists um, who, who could convey those ideas? That's a great question, um, and I'll throw my own personal experience in there just as an example. When I joined Computer World in 1983, I didn't know a computer from a washing machine, and I'd never seen or touched a computer, let alone written about them. So you would have thought I'm like the worst candidate for this. But, you know, on the contrary, in those days, the idea was to hire talented young writers, and we would all sort of learn together, go up the learning curve together. And it was, and it was quite amazing because you could look at the alumni list from IDG Publications, people who started at one or another of them, and went on to become big names. John Markoff, who covered technology for the New York Times for many years, a brilliant writer and author, uh, he started at IDG. Stuart Alsop, who became an industry leader and pundit, he started at IDG. And uh, I, there's a whole list of, of folks. So you would you'd get in there, and you'd just get thrown in the deep end of the pool. And I would be interviewing people and didn't always understand everything they were discussing if it was so technical that it was beyond me. So you just had to keep going back and asking questions and getting up the learning curve. Now that shifted, you know, as the decades passed when younger people coming into that industry had a much, they were much more savvy about the technology because they grew up with it. You know, it was in their face from the time they were little babies. But it was the same premise, which is, this is a great place. We have, we hire very talented editors who can oversee these publications, whether they're in the U.S. or overseas. And, you know, we give our staff the kind of training and learning um, opportunities that they need. And then we support them in fantastic ways. Um, one of the lessons in the book, you, you can't cross the line. McGovern was a real fanatic about backing up the separation of church and state, the, the line between editorial and advertising. If you follow the trade press, you know, there was always this kind of pejorative that the trade press was just a bunch of hacks who were in the pocket, pockets of the advertisers, you know, that whatever a vendor wanted, the trade press would write about it. Well, that was not true at Computer World, not even close. Pat McGovern believed in the you know, sanctity of editorial, and he wouldn't let anyone cross that line because his feeling was the value of his publications was based on their integrity. And the readers knew if they were getting sold a bill of goods, and that's not what they wanted. They wanted real honest reporting, and he would back up every editor who was ever pushed by some CEO saying, I don't like what you're writing about my company. You better stop or I'm going to pull my advertising. And McGovern would say, go ahead and pull your advertising. 
and they and some of them would and they would you know huff and puff for a while and then they realized they're not in the sa- they're not in the exact sweet spot in the marketplace that they need to be for their you know prospective buyers to see their their uh, wares and they would inevitably come back and start advertising it so he would never allow any kind of an advertiser to um, dictate what was being written and i think that was an incredibly important lesson for a whole generation of of tech writers. You got a guy like Harry McCracken who is at Fast Company now. He was the uh, an editor at IDG I think for 17 years and uh, there's a real good story about uh, an editorial versus advertising issue and he put his heels down in the ground, um, actually quit because he felt like he that was not a line he was willing to cross and McGovern stepped in and said, "Nope, I'm backing up Harry. This is an editorial decision and it's his decision." And and McCracken went back and uh it was it became sort of an industry legend, but it illuminates how McGovern felt about that particular issue. That's certainly a valuable lesson. Um we live in an age where uh news is so politicized now that it's sometimes hard to to know when the writer is doing it for you know the integrity of journalism, or to um, uh, to push for his self-interest. So that's very environment that there are people who, who take that very seriously. Yeah, no, I agree. It, you know, the truth is harder to uh, identify these days, as we see in the political world as well. And um, to me, that makes technology even more important. It it opens up lots of issues. I know McGovern, if he were here today, would have plenty of thoughts on that. But, you know, the bottom line, the, the basic fundamental belief in the truth and sticking with it and supporting it was a foundational issue for him. You know, finally, I, I want to ask about his involvement with the uh, Neurosciences Institute at MIT. So as you mentioned, he was very curious in different topics. Um you know, what did he see about the the science of the brain that felt so strongly that he needed to support the research for it? Well, that's a great question as well, because um, McGovern was inspired as a young kid. He was a teenager in Philadelphia, and he used to hang out at the library all the time. He was insatiable. He just was a voracious reader. And he came across a book in 1953, 65 years ago, called Giant Brains That Think uh, by a guy named Edmund Berkeley. And he read that he devoured the book. And the book was the first to really create the position that someday computers might be smart enough, might be fast enough, might be powerful enough to mimic the human brain. And McGovern was just absolutely fascinated by that concept. And it stuck with him his whole life. It, it, it translated to his time at MIT into the major that he did. He sort of combined, um, you know, bioscience, neuro, neuroscience with the study of computer science with the very thought that someday there was going to be this intersection between the study of the human mind, how it works, how to fix it when it's broken, and the technology that's going to be required to do so. And that was a a driving force throughout his career. He didn't have the wherewithal to focus on that very much during, you know, 70s, 80s, etc., when he was building IDG into this global powerhouse. By the time he had amassed this fortune, he and his wife, Lori, started thinking really seriously about, you know, how could they do something to further the the study of the human brain. And even though he was an MIT grad, he didn't assume automatically that MIT would get this amazing donation that they eventually put together. But in 2000, they chose MIT, donated $350 million to the establishment of this Brain Research Institute, which today is called the McGovern Institute for Brain Research. And they didn't just provide the money, 
they were there. He, he used the same philosophy of management um, that he had at IDG. He was involved. He was sat in on lectures. He talked to the researchers. He sent notes and memos to congratulate them on good works. He was a hands-on involved guy because he just loved it. Glenn, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me again today. Thank you for having me, Frank. And we were just talking with Glenn Rifkin, author of the new book, Future Forward. It's a story of tech publishing visionary Patrick McGovern and lessons for leadership. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.groks.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at groks at you can also email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. <laughs>